Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Debbie Sorensen, and this is New Books in Psychology. Today we're talking with Christopher Chabrie about his new book called The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which he wrote with Daniel Simons. This is a fascinating cognitive psychology book about how our cognitive abilities might be more limited than we may realize, and also how common illusions can impact our everyday lives in profound ways. Hi, Chris. Hi, it's great to be here. Great. Thanks for being on uh, New Books in Psychology. Um, today we're talking with Christopher Chabrie about his book, The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which he co-wrote with uh, um, Daniel Simons. This is a fascinating cognitive psychology book about how our cognitive abilities are more limited than we may realize, and also about how common illusions can impact our daily lives. Um, Chris, I was just wondering if you could start the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I am a professor of psychology and co-director of the neuroscience program at Union College, which is in Schenectady, New York. Uh, and before that, I uh, got my Ph.D. and was a research associate and lecturer for a while at uh, Harvard University, also in psychology. And oddly enough, my um, undergraduate degree uh, was in computer science from Harvard, but then I moved from computer science uh, into psychology because I was interested in artificial intelligence. So I sort of gradu- gradually switched over from artificial intelligence to real human intelligence and then to, to cognitive psychology. And uh, that's the uh, that's the journey. Quite a change there. <laughs> it all seemed, it, it, each step seemed very logical at the time, but then in the end, the, the distance traveled seemed to be pretty far. Well, it kind of makes sense, I think, given, given your interests here. Okay, well, let's start with the title of the book, The Invisible Gorilla. Can you tell us about the gorilla experiment that you did? How did you guys come up with that idea and what, what did you find? Well, the title of the book comes from an experiment that my co-author Dan Simons and I did uh, when I was in graduate school uh, at Harvard and Dan had arrived as a new faculty member. And incidentally, my uh, advisor, my mentor, whose lab I was working in, Steve Coslin, was uh, on sabbatical that year out of the country completely, and Dan was around, his office was right down the hall from me, and started talking, discovered we had some mutual interests, and in particular, uh, I wound up uh, being the teaching fellow for one of Dan's first classes, which was a, an experimental psychology course, and in that class, undergraduate students designed their own experiments and basically learned how to do experiments in cognitive psychology, but Dan had the clever idea that instead of just having all the students work on their own little individual projects, we would do some group projects. And it's hard to get a project that it takes 10 or 12 uh, people to do in cognitive psychology. But Dan uh, cleverly figured out that uh, if we did some experiments involving filming uh, events, uh, we could have a lot lot of the students be actors and um, participate in the filming and then go and and test uh, subjects later on. And Dan knew about a classic experiment from the 1950s by um, the late Ulrich Neisser, who actually just uh, died, unfortunately, um, recently, but uh, you know, one of the, the founders of cognitive psychology and real pioneers in the field. 
and uh, NICER in the 1970s had done a, a similar experiment, and we decided to do a different version of it. Um, I'll tell you, I guess, what NICER's version was after I tell you what our version was. Um, in our version, uh, we filmed the students in the class passing basketballs around, and in particular, three of them put on white shirts and three of them put on black shirts, and the white-shirted people and the black-shirted people each had their own basketballs. So there are two basketballs flying. The white-shirted people passed their ball among themselves, and the black-shirted people passed their ball among themselves. We did this all in sort of an empty space in the psychology building and a floor that was being renovated at the time. And uh, we later on showed this video. It was about 60 seconds long. Uh, we showed the video to um, subjects in the experiment and asked them to focus on the players wearing white and count the number of times they pass the ball. Actually, count silently in their head the number of times they pass the ball. And this is basically a, a test of selective attention. So you've got to pay attention to what the white people are doing and ignore the people in black shirts. And this is actually a somewhat taxing task. It really requires attention. You can't be doing other things while you're, while you're doing this. Uh, and then afterwards, we asked them how many passes they counted. And then we surprised them with a question after they told us how many passes they had counted. We surprised them with the question, did you see anything else? Or did you see anything unusual? And eventually we asked them, uh, and they mostly said they mostly said no. Eventually we asked them, did you see a gorilla walk across the screen? And it turned out that we had had a person wearing a gorilla suit walk across the screen, and in one version of the experiment, stop, face the camera, thump her chest, and then walk off the screen, being on screen for a total of nine seconds out of about 60 or 65. And surprisingly, half the people completely did not see that. They reacted mostly with surprise when we asked the question and when we told them there had been a gorilla there. Some of them said, we need to see the tape, play it back, did you switch the tape, uh, and so on. And it really um, uh, it was kind of a surprising result to us. Um, now, Nicer had done something similar earlier. He, he had filmed it with these mirrors so that everybody looked transparent, and it was though all the people in the video were walking through each other. They looked kind of like all like ghosts in some sort of TV show or something like that. And the unexpected... Um, event was not a gorilla, but a person carrying an umbrella, a woman carrying an umbrella. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll do this again. We'll have all the action live choreographed so people can bump into each other, no transparent ghosts, no weird displays or anything like that. And we'll make it something even more unusual, so it really ought to be noticed, uh, you know, a gorilla. We, we thought that people would notice the gorilla. We could not believe um, that the effect was that large and half the people completely missed it. Uh, yeah, it seems like the, someone in a gorilla costume would be pretty easy to spot, but apparently not. Right. So the, the, the nice thing about this experiment, I think, is, is twofold. One, uh, people can miss that, uh, which is kind of interesting that people can miss these salient things that are happening right in front of them. Um, and more interesting to us, actually, as we thought about it more and more, was how surprising people found this result. At the time, we thought we were sort of doing a fun classroom experiment for cognitive psychology, and we did write it up. Uh, as a paper, and we published it in the journal Perception in 1999, but then we didn't really think much of it uh, after that. But we started hearing from more and more people that they had seen this video uh, somewhere, and uh, actually Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in The New Yorker uh, in an article about um, uh, automobile safety, traffic safety. And uh, at that point, interest really picked up. And what surprised us um, looking back on it was um, that it really illustrated a contradiction between people's intuitions and the reality of human behavior. People think they're going to notice that, and that's why it's so surprising to them that they don't notice it. It really sort of points out um, a flaw in their own thinking, uh, and not because they're you know 
uh, unintelligent or uninformed or anything like that. There's something about human nature that gives us the wrong impressions about our own cognitive abilities. And I think that's what this experiment vividly points out. Well, we're going to be talking about quite a few of those because that's a theme throughout the book is how sometimes we're just very wrong about estimating our cognitive abilities. That's true. So what does this particular – so this one is really about paying attention and and the illusion of attention. What does the experiment tell us about attention? One thing that it tells us about attention is that, um, for one thing, uh, attention is good in that it enables us to do cognitive tasks that we couldn't do without attention. You can't do the task of counting these passes of this little object flying around at pretty high speed without paying attention. So we're good at focusing attention, and that's a good thing. Um, What we seem to be unaware of is the extent to which when we focus attention on one uh, area or aspect or stream of events in our visual world, we don't notice things that are happening elsewhere or in other objects or events. Uh, We expect that we're going to notice unexpected things uh, or important things, sort of no matter where they are in our visual field. what happens when we pay attention is that our chance of noticing those things goes down. And this is not the only experiment that shows this. I mean, not only has this experiment been, repli- been replicated many times, but this general phenomenon of inattentional blindness, that uh, we can be essentially blind to things we aren't paying attention to, um, was known before this experiment, and it's been uh, shown in many, many forms. Well, you mentioned traffic safety a few minutes ago. Could you tell us how something like this um, finding about attention might apply to driving? Yeah, that's really, a, I think, a key. It's sort of like the one most basic takeaway from this research is that when you are uh, concentrating on a primary task, um, which in our experiment would be counting the passes of these people um, with a basketball, uh, you are much less likely than you realize to notice other things or to be able to react to other things that are outside of the primary task. So the classic example of this in um, uh, traffic safety is people who are talking on the phone or even worse, of course, texting or emailing or you know playing Angry Birds or something like that on their phone um, while they're also driving. And they have the illusion, in my opinion, that because they are looking outside the windshield, Uh, and looking at what they normally look at and taking everything in, they have the illusion that they're actually noticing all the important stuff. And the illusion comes in part from the very sort of fluid and automatic processing that goes on during driving. Uh, You know, we feel like we're having a rich visual experience. We don't sort of feel like we're not seeing things. And also the lack of feedback uh, because we actually rarely do have accidents when we're talking on the phone. It's not as though every second time you talk on the phone, you crash your car into something. If that's what would happen, then you would learn that it's a really bad idea. Um, but it's, you know, if, if someone swerves to miss you, you may never have noticed that, and you don't get any feedback about how badly you're actually driving. You don't know, um, you know, basically don't know what you're missing is one way of putting it. You know, as long as you keep missing it and, and, and it, doesn't want, it doesn't run into you, then you don't get any feedback about, Uh, how bad your attention actually is. And the experiment, in fact, sort of gives people that feedback. It does sort of give them an instant lesson, in a a sense, in how much they can be missing. Mm. Yeah, we like to fool ourselves into thinking that, you know, this isn't a problem, but but it is. Do you have any um, other examples of how the attention, the illusion of attention or those blind spots can uh, affect our daily lives? 
uh, yeah, th- th- this has happened in a lot of different areas. I, mean, one, I heard an interesting story when I gave a talk, actually. Sometimes people ask, what about in uh, hearing or, you know, is there such a thing as inattentional deafness? And the answer is yes, although it doesn't really go by that name, but it certainly is possible to, to miss otherwise salient sounds and words and sentences and, you know, uh, uh, other things like that when you're paying attention to one conversation or one particular um, uh, stream. I mean, you know, you only have to think about sort of like a, a little kid like concentrating on, you know, Spider-Man on TV or something like that, completely oblivious to what, you know, to, to what you're to what you're saying to them. Um, someone asked me in a, in a, said in a talk once that uh, they had been uh, playing some sport or something like that, and it was, I guess it was a pretty rough and physical game. I don't remember what sport it was. And only half an hour later, after he was done, did he look down and notice that there was a big cut in his leg and blood had been coming out of it. Uh, and he didn't feel it at all, didn't feel the cut, didn't feel it afterwards, and uh, sort of ascribed that to concentrating so much on what he had to do um, and maybe it was soccer or something like that that didn't even think about that sort of inattentional numbness is one way of thinking about is one way of thinking about that. I've never seen that term in the literature, but maybe that's a way of, a way of putting it. So it, it really, I think it's a general, it's not just a visual thing, it's a general feature of our sensory systems. Uh, and it's probably also a more general feature of um, cognition also. If you sort of don't pay attention to information um, or events, um, you may not realize that you're not paying attention to them, you're not taking them into account. You may think that you're taking into account all the information you need when making a decision, but in fact, uh, in, in fact, you're not. Um, there are many other examples in, in safety. Uh, there's a famous case where um, a U.S. nuclear submarine surfaced into a Japanese fishing boat off the coast of Hawaii, basically split the, the poor boat in half and, and caused um, several deaths. Uh, and the captain of the submarine had done a periscope sweep before he went and did this maneuver, and he didn't see any boats around. At least that's what he says afterwards. Uh, and nobody else saw any boats uh, around. And then he surfaced right into this thing. Um, and uh, there have been uh, other incidents with uh, airplanes that could be ascribed to inattentional blindness. And it's really a, a much more ubiquitous phenomenon than than we realize. And, and I think, you know, most people in, in everyday life, human nature is not to notice these limitations exactly because they have to do with things you don't see or don't feel or don't hear or don't think right. about. So how, by definition, how do those things come to your attention? How do you find out about those things? Um, so this is happening a lot, I think. And it's, it's an interesting um, feature of, um, of the design of the mind that we have these wrong impressions about how well our sensory and cognitive systems are performing. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because you think the ability to concentrate on something is usually considered a good thing, but there's a downside when you're concentrating so hard on one thing, you're missing a lot of other, there's just so much information out there, you're missing a lot of other information. Yeah, and, and I think the ability to concentrate is a good thing. I mean, I'm the, some people say, some people say, well, how can I learn to, you know, spot the gorilla? How can I be the person who doesn't see the gorilla, you know, who doesn't miss the gorilla, who actually sees the gorilla in everyday life? And I was sort of worried that even if there were some magic way of doing that, it would have to uh, it would have to result in some kind of depletion of your ability to concentrate on the main task. And I think people shortchange the value of concentrating on one task. It's it's hard it's harder nowadays to concentrate on one task because just the volume of potential distractions is higher. You know what with the internet, you know TV. Um, 
just the general complexity of society and um, you know number of demands on our time and so on. So I think sometimes people have tried to flip that into a virtue. Well, maybe you know they'll try to say, well, I'm, I'm good at multitasking. I can do multiple things at once. It's it's good not to pay too much attention to any one thing. But in fact, performance goes way down um, you know, when you do that. And the, the inability to focus or the tendency not to focus, I, I don't think is is the right solution to this problem. Right. We have enough multitasking as it is. <laughs> Facebook, you know, all that. Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, actually one of the another experiment that I thought was really fascinating was the person change experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, this uh, these experiments uh, were started by Dan Simons and his colleague Dan Levin, who uh, was he was in graduate school together with at Cornell, and uh, they came up with this idea for um, almost a, a candid camera kind of experiment. It turns out candid camera had done something similar years earlier, or some some sort of show like candid camera. They actually. Uh, sent an experimenter out to the quad at Cornell. And again, this has been repeated in many other situations, you know, so this is not sort of a one-off. This, this really works. Um, they sent an experimenter out to the quad at Cornell, and he would just ask unsuspecting passersby for directions to some building, like the gym or something like that. And as the passerby, who is now a subject in the experiment, although he doesn't know it yet, as he's giving directions to the experimenter, two other experimenters walk down the path and rudely cut between them while carrying a large door um, on its side. So the effect of this, if you can visualize it, is that um, while the door is passing between them, one of the people carrying the door is able to switch places with the experimenter. So the experimenter now is going off carrying the door, but both of the people carrying the door have their are behind the door, so the, uh, the um, subject in the experiment can't see the switch happening. So once the door passes by, the subject in the experiment now sees a person who continues the conversation as though he was the original person who was there. And surprisingly, half of the people in this experiment did not realize they were talking to a completely different person after the door went by. And, uh, you know, they were both, um, you know, uh, white males, you know, uh, dressed like students, uh, but they differed in height. They differed in the sound of their voice. They differed in what they were wearing. Uh, they had different color jackets or something like that. I mean, there were some significant, some significant differences um, between them. And when you put them side by side, they look like completely different people. Uh, so this phenomenon uh, was described by uh, Dan Simons and Dan Levin as change blindness, meaning um, a blindness or an inability to notice significant changes that happen to your visual world, uh, usually when your attention is distracted and put on something else. So, you know, if, if, if uh, the subject is talking to the experimenter and the experimenter just sort of like walks off and gets replaced by another experimenter, of course it's going to get noticed every time because your attention is drawn to the moment of the change and you see one person being replaced by another. But if your attention is distracted, it seems like you're very unlikely to notice these changes or at least much more unlikely than you would think going in. So people have described these experiments to other people and said, what if you were a subject in this experiment? Would you notice? And almost everybody says, yes, they would notice. So, again, people sort of overestimate their ability to to notice these changes. Here it's more of an issue of memory because you're sort of not comparing the memory you had of the person you were talking to before the change event to what you're looking at right in front of you now. It's not the same exact thing as inattentional blindness, but it's... it's, uh, it's related, it's, but it's more a ph- phenomenon of memory rather than of attention. Mm. Yeah, so so we would overestimate that, thinking that 
we'd be pretty good at that, you know, knowing when a person changes into another person. And yet, again, we're we're giving ourselves too much credit there, at least in this kind of situation. Yeah, we think we're keeping track of more information uh, in our experience than we really are. Uh, we, we did this um, study again, a, a different version of it at Harvard, um, when Dan was a professor and I was a grad student there. Um, the, um, the, the ethics committee at Harvard didn't want us to run the study the same way we had uh, the same way that Dan had at Cornell. Uh, the problem was that we were basically approaching people and making them subjects in the experiment without revealing this to them. Uh, and so we, we came up with a way around that. Um, we actually had people uh, go into the lobby of the psychology building, uh, which is uh, you know a tall, I think it's about 15 stories tall, um, uh, and they were recruited for an experiment in the lobby and then said, told to go up to the eighth floor. And when they get to the eighth floor in the elevator and they come out, there's a sign that says experiment here with a counter. And uh, they went to the counter and they, there was an experimenter standing behind the counter and handed them a form and said, OK, fill out this consent form and then the experiment will start. So the subject fills out the consent form just like they always do. Um, maybe they read it carefully. Maybe they didn't. Um, they sign it and hand it back to the experimenter. And then the experimenter ducks down behind the counter and another experimenter pops up to replace him. And now give some other instructions, like take this piece of paper and go down the hall. And that was the change right there. So technically it happened after they had filled out the consent form, but before they really realized they, the experiment had started. You, they were expecting to be told, okay, now go down the hall and the experiment will start down there. Um, so in this case, again, um, many people did not, did not notice the change. And even some people who had come directly from a lecture elsewhere in the building that had talked about change blindness happened to stumble into this experiment, and even they did not notice the change. So just purely being aware of it doesn't mean your cognitive system suddenly resets so that you expect this to happen all the time. Just knowing about these things or having heard about them once doesn't change your uh, change the way you experience the world and change the way your attention and memory work. Unfortunately, I wish it, I wish it were that easy. Oh, yeah. I've read your book now. I'm kind of expecting that I'm going to not make this kind of mistake anymore. Not true, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're better off than if you didn't write than if you didn't read it. Um, I'll, I'll never say that it's a bad thing to read my book. Everyone should read it and, and buy three copies each, of course, but uh, give two to your friends. Um, but uh, it, it really, you know, it's, it's one of those cases where um, it's, it's good to read and it's good to be aware of this, but then you have to think, well, what do I do in my life that uh, reflects the illusion. So he, we call this one the illusion of memory. Um, what we've just been talking about is the belief that we're um, remembering, encoding and remembering events in our lives much more accurately and permanently and objectively than we really are. You have to think about what, what are you doing in your life that reflects this illusion? That, that uh, you know, for example, I mean, one thing people do is they, they argue with other people over uh, who said what, you know, two or three weeks ago in some conversation or something like that. And unfortunately, memory research suggests that the most likely situation there is that neither person is right in the argument. And the, the one who wins is not going to be the one who, you know, whose memory was closer to the truth or anything like that. It's just going to be the one who doesn't give up. And ah. right. And that, that argument is a complete waste of time and probably makes things worse in, in whatever relationship you have with this person, um, especially, you know, if you're, you're married to them or, um, you know, related to them or somehow. Um, memory is just not that perfect, but the, the more important problem is that we don't realize it's not that perfect, so we wind up arguing with people over whose memory is more accurate. Uh, and, of course, we have criminal trials over um, you know, issues largely determined by memory. So if you're ever on a jury or you're ever involved in a, a you know, heaven forbid, a crime um, or a serious uh, situation like that um, where 
guilt or innocence or liability turns on memory, you've got to be aware that people's memories are not nearly as good as they think they are, and your fellow jurors or uh, you know other people, if you work in law enforcement, other people you work with may have an incorrect theory or an incorrect belief about how good memory is, and you know the truth may not be served by having this illusion that uh, we're going to remember things much more accurately and objectively than we really are. Well, speaking of which, uh, September 11th, you mentioned this in your book, and I think I can remember very vividly my personal experience on that day, you know, when the news broke, and and I remember where I was, and um, these are flashbulb memories Mm -hmm. for, you know, when when these big, real traumatic events happen, these really emotionally charged events happen, um, how likely do you think it is that my memories of that day are accurate? Um, I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it right now, um, especially <laughs> after you've read the book. Maybe you've, you've gone back and done some research on this to, to, check, to check on your memory, but I can say for myself that I have a very vivid memory of what I was doing when I heard about um, 9-11. And I think, as, as we mentioned in the book, um, I was in graduate school at the time, so I was kind of on a little bit of a, a sleep late calendar. Um, and, uh, when I woke up, I actually, I believe heard about this on, uh, by listening to Howard Stern on the radio of all things. And, uh, I was alone at home, you know, and, and, and so on. And I have some other recollections of, of what, of what happened, uh, of what happened that day. And it does seem very vivid to me. Um, I obviously don't remember what I was doing on September 10th or September 12th or any of those other days around there, except in the most, you know, vague and general terms, uh, and you're not alone, so you're not alone in having this experience. In fact, in the book, Dan, we wrote about Dan's memories. Dan wrote out a detailed memory of uh, how he experienced 9-11, and there were various people in his memory. So fortunately, since um, he was a professor and the people in his memory were his graduate students at the time who are now still in contact with him, he sent them an email and said, send me back your recollection of 9-11. And uh, it turns out that there were significant discrepancies among all of these recollections that they have, several of which pointed to Dan not being right, because he remembered people being there that nobody else remembered being there. And then there was someone else who was there that, that Dan didn't remember, but the other people did. Um, but nobody was completely was completely correct about it. They couldn't have all been completely correct about it, because there were too, there were too many discrepancies. Uh, and this, if you think about it, this is for a salient event that everybody has, as you say, a flashbulb memory for, a feeling as though, you know, a flash photograph was taken and it's imprinted. Uh, in your memory and will never go away somehow. Um, Ulrich Neisser, the the same um, uh, researcher who had done the gorilla experiment, did really the definitive experiment on flashbulb memories. And uh, it was a genius uh, maneuver. Um, He and his co-author, after the space shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, had their students uh, fill out a form indicating um, what... uh, what they had experienced, I believe it was the day before. So at this point, they probably hadn't had too much time to distort this memory. It was still very fresh in their minds. And then came back to them about two years later before they graduated and asked them to recall their experience again and found many, many, many discrepancies um, between them. But uh, they also found that the people believed completely that their memories were accurate. And in fact, they mentioned that one student was shown his handwritten answers from two years earlier, you know, the day after the explosion. And he said, yes, that's my handwriting, but I don't remember it happening that way. That's not how it happened. You know, I I admit that that's my handwriting, but that's not how it happened. The distortion in memory that had happened over those two years 
not a deliberate distortion or anything like that, just the natural changes that happen to our memories, um, was so powerful that even being shown what he originally wrote, it, it didn't sort of like snap that memory back into place or anything like that. He still felt more strongly in the memory in his head than in his own documentary evidence. So, you know, like you said, and think of the implications for criminal trials and how much weight people place on, on memory um, versus other kinds of, uh, of information. And just in your own daily life, how much you pay attention to your memories. And people don't, one, one thing people don't realize is that they're, we actually are leaving now with all these computers and devices and so on around us, we're leaving more and more paper trails. They're not really written on paper anymore, but one thing I did um, after... Um, uh, writing up that chapter for the book was I went back to my um, email, actually. And years later, I still had my, my inbox, my saved messages and my sent mails from that day and found some things uh, about 9-11 that I had not uh, remembered. Um, but they were sort of noted there as a result of emails I had sent that day or I had received. Hmm. So I probably remember September 11th better than, say, September 8th of that same year. But my... I might be overestimating how accurate I think I I might think I'm more accurate than I actually am in my memory. I'm not sure you're even remembering September 11th better than than September 8th. Um, So people have done uh, studies like that where uh, that was that was sort of the the next generation. These flashbulb memory studies sort of they, they come along kind of episodically because usually they depend on an event happening that sort of everyone is aware of and has an emotional impact on everyone. Right, so the space shuttle explosion in 1986 was one. Um, uh, 9/11 is another one. There aren't that many sort of you know universally uh, uh, you know familiar events. The original ones that were studied were the Lincoln assassination, believe it or not, uh, in the 19th century, and then the JFK uh, assassination. So presidential assassinations, fortunately, are are few and far between, and national disasters are as well. Um, so when 9/11 came around. Um, a couple of researchers whose uh, names elude me right now, but we do mention them in, mention them in the book, um, had people write down their memories for, uh, I think, either the day before or the day after, and then what happened. And again, they, uh, on, and, and then for 9-11, and again, they did this within a day or two of, of the actual mm-hmm. event. So they, they tr- treated those things that were written down, you know, on 9-13, let's say, as the truth, and then followed up, um, you know, a year or two later to see, um, what had changed, and they found that the memories had distorted just as much. So the, the memories of nine ten were just as uh, inaccurate as the memories of nine eleven, but the confidence in the memories of nine eleven was extremely high. Whereas people realized that they weren't too sure about nine ten. They thought they were really sure about nine eleven. So in the book, we say, um, you know, in, instead of a sort of a flashbulb memory. Um, what it is is really sort of like a, a belief device. What what happens and what the flashbulb does is it makes you believe that you've recorded a permanent memory. Mm. Um, it makes you very confident in your memory of that day, but it doesn't. Um, but it doesn't really uh, actually make a permanent uh, imprint the way we think it does. Mm. All memories are subject to distortion, even the ones you you think are are you know are the most perfect. Wow. Yeah, we may construct some pieces of it after the fact. Yes. When, whenever we recall a memory, what we're doing is constructing that memory by assembling different pieces of experience from different places. Often we fill things in because we think that's what should have happened um, or because um, what we recall in lieu of the truth satisfies some other motives we have. So Hillary Clinton, for example, in the presidential election, when she was running against um, uh, Barack Obama for the Democratic nomination, she told a story about being under sniper fire in Bosnia. And which was untrue because she, the video came out later of her landing and there was a nice welcoming ceremony and no one was, you know, ducking and covering and, uh, 
and so on. And she didn't probably just didn't toss this out in casual conversation. She was running for president against someone she viewed as much less experienced, especially in the area of international affairs. So her, the memories she created, just like the memories we all create all the time, were somewhat consistent with her motives and beliefs um, at the time. She was more experienced in international affairs, um, and that was a strong suit of her campaign. And that's why that's part, partly explains, in my view, why she said what she said. Interesting. Yeah, she probably completely believed it. And I bet at the time, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no. We, we, unfortunately, I wish I wish I were a good enough cognitive psychologist that I could get inside Hillary Clinton's head right. or anyone else's head <laughs> and figure out exactly what's the truth and what and what's not the truth. It's not really even clear to me that the truth is in there somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the 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 things that happen that distort our memories may be, in a sense, permanently changing um, the originals. I, I don't think it's the case that the the truth is sort of down in there somewhere, and we just have to uncover it. That, that's more kind of personal opinion, but I do suspect that Hillary Clinton, when she told that Bosnia story, actually believed that that's what happened to her and just thought she was telling a story. And, you know, uh, maybe when those news reports came out, you know, we don't know, but when the news reports came out, she, she might have said, well, that's true, that's, that's a video of me, but that's not the way I remember it. So, I don't know, though. We never got the chance to ask her. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe someday. Well, tell us about the illusion of confidence, how sometimes we maybe tend to be a little overly confident in, in our estimation of our abilities. So the illusion of confidence is the third um, illusion that we talk about in the book. In, in the book, we call these things everyday illusions, the, the idea being that they are um, illusions about um, our own minds that affect us every day. At least one of them, and probably you know, many of them, are affecting us every day in all kinds of decisions we make. And confidence is, is one of the most important ones. There are actually two, there, there are really two illusions of confidence. One is the illusion that um, our own skills and abilities are better than they really are. So we have too much confidence in our own um, performance, and we pay too much attention to confidence in other people. Uh, which is, in a way, uh, you know, sort of a, a corollary. So if people are overconfident in their own abilities, we really shouldn't be paying that much attention to how confident people are, but we do pay a lot of attention to how confident people are. Um, the classic example is, you know, the witness uh, on the stand in a criminal trial or, let's say, testifying before Congress or some other, uh, you know, uh, body um, or a deposition or something, the witness who seems poised, confident, self-assured, smooth, remembers everything with complete clarity and convicted and conviction is going to be a much more convincing witness and people are going to believe her uh, much more. Now, it's not the case that a confident witness, uh, that, that confidence means nothing. Confident eyewitnesses, research has showed, are more likely to be correct than unconfident eyewitnesses. But uh, we tend to think that they are more confident. That, sorry, let me put that a different way. We tend to think that they're confidence is a better reflection of their accuracy than it really is. So, um, for example, uh, confident witnesses are right 70% of the time. Unconfident witnesses are right 30% of the time. But that leaves still, for a confident witness who's right 70% of the time, they're still wrong 30% of the time. So uh, 30% is probably enough for a reasonable doubt so that you know probably a criminal uh, verdict based on just one confident witness uh, is a little bit shakier than we realize. And that's just for eyewitness testimony. There, there are many other, um, many other areas where we pay too much attention to the confidence of, of other people. You know, you wrote about how we, we prefer experts who think they know a lot. And, and one area that this happens is 
in medicine and how we perceive, how we rate our doctors. And mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because just the other day, my mom was telling me that she found a new doctor. And the only thing she said about the doctor was that the doctor seemed nervous. <laughs> and I thought of your book because, you know, well, tell us about how this might apply to medicine. Yeah, there, there are some areas where you don't want to see nervousness, right? Like you don't want to you don't want to walk on the airplane and look in the cockpit and see that the pilot looks nervous. Uh, you know, that should be unsettling, right? And, and a doctor who looks nervous while they're about to sort of, you know, start surgery on you or something like that, you know, ought, ought to be a little ought to be a little unsettling. Um, but an experience I had, um, which turned out later on to be um, actually, uh, there was a research study on this I didn't realize at the time. But again, when I was in graduate school, um, I had this this weird um, I had these flu symptoms and I had this weird uh, rash on my uh, back of my leg and I hadn't seen the rash, but I, I went into the uh, clinic, um, the health services, and they said, "Well, it's a flu. You know, get drink lots of fluids and take take aspirin and so on." But then the next day, I saw this weird rash, and I went back and I said, "Hey, look at this thing down here on my leg. I didn't notice this before." And then the doc, at that point, the doctor who was on duty did something I'd never seen before. She left the room and came back with a book and opened it up and compared the picture in her book to what was on my leg. And she said, hey, look, you know, this, well, she didn't say, hey, look, that was a little bit of an embellishment there. But she said, this, uh, this is a classic uh, Lyme disease rash. Uh, you know, you've been bitten by this tick and gotten Lyme disease from it, and your rash looks exactly like the one in the book. Uh, you know, and I, I, I said, okay, um, that was a little bit unsettling. You know, Lyme disease is, um, uh, Lyme disease uh, can, can be scary. Uh, and then she did, she did it again. She went and got another book and looked up the treatment. And uh, the treatment is a certain course of antibiotics. And then she prescribed it, and I, you know, and I left. And I had never been in, you know, an encounter with a doctor where they had looked things up in books. And this happened twice in the same, in the same uh, medical encounter. Uh, and uh, I thought at the time that that was a little bit odd. Now I did follow the prescription, and everything got better, and I was, you know, back to normal. Um, but uh, it's not that unusual um, for people to pay attention to sort of the confidence and the quickness and, and so on of, of the doctor um, uh, more than they should. Uh, it, someone did a research study um, where they actually sort of showed videotaped encounters with doctors to um, subjects who were potential patients and had them rate, um, you know, how much they, they, liked the, um, they liked the doctor. And the doctors who consulted reference materials got the lowest ratings of, of anyone. The doctor who got the highest ratings was the one who immediately wrote out a prescription and, and said, uh, you know, go on your way, even while admitting that they weren't, um, you know, that, that, that they weren't sure whether that was whether it was necessary. Um, so uh, I think um, uh, we have this tendency, as, as you say, to, to assume that um, if someone's got uh, if someone's acting quickly and decisively and so on, that that must mean they know what they're doing. And if someone consults reference materials or hesitates or consults other experts, um, that that's a bad sign. But in fact, the reverse might be true. I'd sort of rather have someone who looks up the diagnosis and confirms it than someone who is so confident that they don't need to because that uh, that person who's so confident might be wrong and not even realize right. it. They might completely miss it. Yeah, they might completely miss it, but you'll never yeah. know because they thought they were 100% correct and they just you know, hand you a prescription and off you go. But if they actually discuss with you some of the considerations and the alternatives and the reasons for their decision and so on, you should then be more confident, I think, not mm-hmm. less confident. So it's, you mentioned that even experts in a field can be 
way off the mark. Sometimes they think they know more than they actually do about things. This is the the illusion of knowledge. Could you tell us how that might apply to something like investing? Yeah, so um, investing is a great example of a field, at least investment advice, let me put it that way, and also I think a lot of investing, a field that is basically owes its existence to the illusion of knowledge. And the illusion of knowledge is um, our tendency to believe that we understand complex things more deeply and correctly than we actually do. Uh, it's not the same as the illusion of confidence. The confidence is sort of confidence in our own abilities or our own um, memories or our own skills. Whereas the illusion of knowledge is the belief that our knowledge is deeper than it really is. A prime example happens with the stock market. Uh, there's a whole genre of books that you can buy with titles like, you know, Dow 30,000, Dow 40,000, Dow 100,000. These are all actual books that were actually published and actually sold, um, which have this explain this very simple theory explaining why the value of the Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to hit 40,000 within a certain number of years or whatever. And they, they give you, you know, an investment you know, plan to follow based on this. And, and there is no way that these people writing these books know as much about the stock market as they think they do. Uh, incidentally, all those books, you know, are now out of print or, you know, selling for, you know, five cents each or something like that uh, on, on Amazon. Um, there's a great temptation to uh, reduce a complex system and, and the, the global financial markets are sort of in a way the ultimate complex system that, you know, how much, how much, what the Greek government is doing at any one point in time affects, you know, the, the bottom line of, of everybody in the rest of the world now in terms of the value of their, of their, um, of their financial assets. It's a it's incredibly complex system. To think that that can be reduced to a simple model that you can then act on and, and successfully make money that, that other people aren't making um, is a prime example of the illusion of knowledge. One, one reason why it persists is that surely some people do make more money than others in the stock market and some people make make a lot less money. Some people lose all their money. Some people make fortunes. But we underestimate how much of that is due to randomness, uh, chance, luck, um, you know, accidental good timing. They, they just happen to in, have money to invest when the stock market happened to be on its way up. Um, uh, or uh, just lucky picks, um, you know, all kinds of other reasons why some people win and some people lose besides uh, actual knowledge of the system. And yet the people who win wind up writing the books and giving the advice and they go on TV and, you know, every night they'll say, buy this, sell that, buy this, sell that. And they can't possibly know uh, things with as, as much uh, depth or confidence, for that matter, as they uh, as they display. Hmm. If only if only it was that simple. <laughs> and actually, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. It's, it's not just complex systems. I mean, if, if, if it were just a matter of, well, well, we'll just sort of not make predictions about complex systems and we won't worry about those. But. People even overestimate their knowledge of simple things. There's a great study by um, uh, uh, by a British researcher who asked people how well they thought they understood how a bicycle works. And they would rate this on a scale of one to seven. Sort of one would be, I have no idea how a bicycle works, to seven being, I have a very good understanding of bicycles. And then she surprised them by asking them to draw a bicycle. And I wish I could show you in a, a, you know in an audio interview what these pictures look like. Um, but they, uh, they they would do things like have the chain connect both wheels of the bicycle. So, for example, if you think about it, if you're riding a bicycle and the chain connects both wheels, anytime you turn, anytime you try to steer or turn, you're going to be bending the chain, and the chain is going to snap right off or the bicycle is going to fall down. There was no possible way to ride that bike. Um, so what's going on here? Well, people think 
their knowledge is higher, and that's evidenced by their ratings, than it actually is. But, of course, they can ride the bicycle perfectly well. They know how to ride a bicycle. And if they looked at a bicycle, they could probably explain, oh, yeah, if the chain connects both wheels, then it can't possibly work. The chain needs to connect the pedal to the back wheel, and that's how you power the bike. And then the front wheel needs to be free to move and so on. But they don't think of all that stuff when they're asked to rate their own knowledge. And mm. these are the questions that we, people don't ask themselves when they invest, right? They don't say, well, do I really understand whether Apple is going to go up from being worth $550 billion or down? What do I really understand? How much do I understand about Apple's competitors, Apple's products, everything else in the global computer and industry, internet industry and music industry and so on? They don't really they don't really ask those questions. They form an impression based on an intuition, which doesn't really match match reality. Wow. Uh, tell us about the, the illusion of cause and effect. So the illusion of cause is, is kind of related to those last two illusions. And the idea is that we believe that we understand cause and effect better than we actually do. Uh, one way we do that is by uh, generalizing from uh, single experiences, especially experiences where one thing happened and then something else happened. And we tend to assume that the first thing that happened caused the second thing. If there's any kind of logical connection we can come up with between the two. So a, a classic example is uh, vaccination. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as, as most people know nowadays, it has gotten a lot of publicity. Um, there are beliefs that uh, autism has increased in prevalence over the last 10 or 20 years um, because um, vaccines can cause autism as a side effect. Uh, and uh, people have sort of formed that belief um, on the basis of either hearing um, celebrity commentary about it, um, hearing celebrities talk about it and espouse those beliefs, or maybe occasionally some, some doctors also who, who say them, or maybe experiencing themselves that um, their child started uh, showing some symptoms of autism shortly after receiving one of their vaccines, typically the uh, measles, the mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine, which happens around age two or so. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not completely illogical. You know, some needle is put in and some foreign substance is, you know, in injected, and then your behavior starts to change at some point after that. It's, it's not an illogical connection to make. Um, the problem is sort of twofold. One, we're very good at making those connections. Um, we're very good at finding patterns in, um, in you know, in our, in our behavior and in our environment. Um, and uh, two, we're fairly unaffected by hearing about scientific evidence against those beliefs. So if this were true, you'd expect people to, who have gotten um, MMR uh vaccinations to have a higher rate of autism than people who haven't. And people have actually gone and looked at this in, in data sets covering hundreds of thousands or millions of children. There's actually no difference in the likelihood of autism between people who've had vaccinations and people who haven't. And this has been settled, you know, over and over again in, in, in many, uh, in many uh, medical journal articles. And th there's really no um, serious debate over that point. But uh, one of the sort of foibles of the human mind or one of the, the, the illusions that we have is that um, sort of abstract data on hundreds of thousands of people in medical studies doesn't penetrate our thinking and our beliefs as much as a single good story uh, from a celebrity, from a friend, from ourselves, um, uh, or whatever. So uh, that's, the, that's the illusion of cause, is the, the tendency to sort of believe in cause and effect when we don't have evidence for it, and maybe to um, discount you know, evidence that really would 
uh, be valuable in explaining it. And in this case, isn't it the case that the onset of the symptoms of, of autism are first usually detected around that same time? So it's more of just a ti- coincidence in timing. Isn't that yeah, so, um, the case? We're, if something happened five years later, then we'd be much less likely to ascribe cause and effect. Um, so we tend to sort of pick the cause that is most logical and easy to connect to the effect. And in, in this case, um, if the cause is close in time before the effect, the, the supposed effect, I should say, um, and is plausibly somehow related, and, you know, an injection of something, you know, could change your behavior, that makes sense, right? Um, then we're much more likely to make the connection um, uh, than, uh, you, you know, most kids probably get read Goodnight Moon, you know, around the same, you know, around the same time. But, you know, nobody's saying, saying that Goodnight Moon causes autism. It's not logical that it could. There's some logic to an injection mm-hmm. being able to cause autism, but it's the coincidence, the temporal coincidence that it happens to happen around the same age as autism symptoms first become detectable that, uh, and, and then autism first gets diagnosed um, that causes people to make this connection. I think also that the fact that there are, that celebrities who believe in this connection sort of repeatedly get a platform in the media um, is, a, is a part of the problem also. that People might not necessarily believe something because Jenny McCarthy believes it, but Jenny McCarthy gets to talk about her beliefs to Oprah and Larry King and others over and over again, whereas uh, people who explain the reality of uh, vaccines and, and autism um, are not as popular as celebrities. They don't get as much of a platform and they just don't draw as much attention as celebrities do. Interestingly, why we pay so much attention to celebrities is another interesting foible of the, yeah. of the human mind. It, it, there's really no logic. There, there's really no logic as to why Jenny McCarthy should know anything more about parenting than the average other, you know, mother, new mother in, in the, uh, you know, in, in the country. But uh, people pay attention to her when she talks about it. That's a whole interesting question of human nature right there. That I'm, I haven't figured that one out yet, but I think there's, there's something interesting to that. Me either. Well, maybe <laughs> that could be your next book. <laughs> so people might be disappointed if uh, they read your book to find out that sometimes we think some activities will make us smarter, you know, like listening to Mozart, doing crossword puzzles. Um, but tell us about that. Is that really true? And what, what's the, what happened here with the Mozart effect? So uh, people may remember the Mozart effect. Actually, it's been almost 20 years now since the Mozart effect was first, quote, discovered, or at least announced in an article in Nature, the prestigious scientific journal. And the researchers who discovered it claimed that um, if you listen to Mozart's music for about 10 minutes, that you will then do about eight or nine points better on an IQ test that you take right afterwards, and that therefore Mozart's effect has sort of a short-term um, enhancing effect on cognitive ability. Uh, and as a result of this, people started doing things like playing Mozart's music in, in libraries and, more importantly, buying CDs of Mozart's music to listen to or... Uh, buying uh, the music to play to their newborn babies on the logic that if this works on college students who were the subjects in the original experiment, it ought to work even better on, you know, newborns who are ready to soak up, you know, whatever, whatever, the, you know, nature, whatever the environment provides for them. They were actually Hence the multi-million dollar industry on of baby, baby Einstein and that yeah. kind of thing, right? The, the baby Einstein company, which is now a brand that is inescapable for new parents, um, there are baby Einstein toothbrushes, there are baby Einstein everything, but it started out as a, a 
DVDs, and that company was started in the wake of the Mozart effect, um, you know, news report. This idea that somehow, you know, early enrichment um, with classical music or other things seemingly associated with geniuses like Mozart, Einstein, Bach, you know, so on, um, would be a big booster to people's brain power was very popular. And, and in the book, we, we argue that this reflects something we call the illusion of potential, which is sort of a recurrent belief that there's got to be some easy way to make ourselves smarter. And it's not just it's not just smarter, of course. This often applies to health and beauty and, and other areas. We, we sort of have a, have a tendency to sort of believe or hope that there are quick ways to achieve, quick and easy ways to achieve really dramatic results. Um, uh, you know, thin thighs in 30 days or whatever. You know, there's always, there's always some, you know, there's always some. Usually the things we want to achieve are achievable. Right. Like we, we can get smarter. In fact, we put you know, we put our children through, you know, 12 plus years of public education, not just to get them out of the house, but because we think it's actually going to make them smarter. Right. There's something about going through the educational system that gives you more knowledge and skills and abilities and vocabulary and and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. Um, but that takes 12 years and it's very expensive. It's much nicer if we could do it in 10 minutes or maybe an hour or two hours or something like that. But basically the summary of all the literature that has looked at these sort of get smart quick schemes is found that they don't work. Um, at best, what they do is they make you better at doing the thing that you're doing. So, um, you know, you do a lot of crosswords, you get better at doing crosswords. Um, you might learn a few words along the way, but you're not generally going to make your brain bigger or, you know, boost your brain power and so on. Um, playing um, video games, especially those brain games um, that Nintendo and other companies have sold, make you better at playing the games, but so far there's no good evidence that they make you better at anything else. Like, you know, doing memory tests on, you know, your, um, you know, on your, uh, do, doing memory games um, on your uh, handheld computer or your smartphone or whatever um, won't necessarily make you any better at remembering where your car is in the parking lot <laughs> or remembering where your keys were when you can't find them or any of those things that I think are the reasons why people are motivated to do this. There was a TV commercial for one of them where someone runs into an old friend on the street and can't remember his name. And the implication is that if you would only play our, our brain games, then you would, you know, not have these kind of senior moments happen to you at age 45 or whatever the guy, whatever the guy was. Um, there are, it, it turns out there are ways to, to improve those skills and abilities. You practice the skills and abilities you want to improve. It's kind of obvious advice. Um, and you get your general health in good shape, especially your aerobic fitness, because it probably is the case that improving blood flow to the brain is sort of like the single best thing you can do for your brain power. The brain relies on blood, which carries glucose and oxygen and all kinds of other things that the cells in the brain require. And if you can improve the flow of blood to your brain, that's probably the one best thing you can do. So that's aerobic. You know, that's the same thing that improves the flow of blood to your rest of your body, aerobic conditioning. Um, and there have been some credible studies on that that show that that has an effect. But uh, unfortunately, I, I wish it were as easy as doing crossword puzzles and so on, because those things are fun. Yeah, I think we'd all like to think that uh, we could skip the gym and, you know, play a few games or listen to some music instead, but yeah. not. unfortunately, there's, I guess, no shortcut like that. Yeah. In the case of Mozart, by the way, um, there have been many studies on the Mozart effect because it was so startling that people figured, well, we've got to go try this in our own lab. If this really works, you know, this is tremendous. And the, the net result of all of those studies, of which there have been dozens now, um, is that either there is no Mozart effect or what the Mozart effect really comes from is that when you listen to something that puts you in a good mood or slightly arouses you, not arouses you sexually, but arouses you cognitively, so you're sort of more alert and attentive right afterwards, then you're going to do a little bit better on cognitive tests than you do after that. 
So it's a good idea to sort of put yourself in a good mood and a slightly aroused mood before a test or before an important, um, you know, uh, meeting or something like that. But that doesn't mean you're, you know, boosting up your IQ, you know, by any significant amount or anything like that. It's just sort of good preparation to perform at your peak. So as we're kind of wrapping up this interview here, I'm wondering if you can think of any overall, I guess, suggestions from your research and from the book. How can we use this? So, so now we've kind of learned that, that we have all these, um, you know, illusions and some, some shortcomings cognitively. Um, any suggestions for how we can use this in our lives? Yeah, I think being aware of how your mind really works um, is of tremendous value. Um, I try to put this stuff into work myself and uh, into action myself. And one thing I do is I, I'm very sorely tempted now that my phone can do anything a computer can do. I'm very, very sorely tempted to use it while I'm driving. I should be paying attention to other things. So one thing you can do is, you know, zip it up in your, in your briefcase or purse or backpack and then put that thing in the back seat. So you can't even unzip it and, and access it while you're driving. So change your environment to make you less prone to fall victim to these illusions. Um, uh, you know, uh, in the case of the illusion of cause, um, don't read, uh, you know, bad science and advice books that are based purely on people's personal experiences. Um, don't pay attention to celebrities. I mean, I probably didn't need to tell people, you know, this to not pay attention <laughs> to celebrities. But celebrities, the celebrities are different from you and me in so many ways. You know, they've all got personal trainers. They've all got, you know, chefs, you know, and, and so on. Anything they suggest to do to improve their lives is, is not, you know, what's really working for them. Um, when In the case of memory, um, think about um, how accurate memory really is the next time you get into any kind of dispute that's in, involved in memory. And, and think about the different ways that you could check your own memory. If there's something important that you're opining on and you're doing it from memory, think about whether there's any way you can check it. How many of us ever go back in our calendar, you know, our, our, our calendar program on our computer or, you know, our file effects or whatever? How many of us ever go back and look at what we really were doing on some date? Or go back to our saved mail or our sent mail and look at what we said to people in the past. Maybe we can. We actually have records of a lot of stuff that instead we rely on our memories for. Don't trust people who say they have a perfect memory of something. Don't trust people who say they're absolutely certain of things. People, people who say they're absolutely certain of things are almost by definition overconfident. Um, don't, uh, you know, don't trust people who um, give you such, um, you know, one-sided or um, automatic advice and so on. They're probably suffering from the illusion of knowledge. And of course, don't waste your money on, uh, you know, on, on brain games and so on, unless you just enjoy playing them. But but don't, you know, don't don't think that it's going to actually, um, you know, make you instantly smarter. Um, and think, you know, think, think of one thing I tell my students is look for examples of this in your own life or in the news or whatever. And if you start looking at the world sort of through the, the lenses of these illusions, you can start to get a lot of insights into other people's behavior and understand why other people are are doing things. In the case of Hillary Clinton, if everybody had realized the way memory works, they wouldn't have all just started calling her a liar. I mean, she might have gotten out of that episode of the, of the Bosnian snipers and so on if, if it hadn't been that people were writing editorials saying, well, she's either a liar or she's mentally ill or whatever. If people wrote an editorial saying, well, that's the way memory works, you know, sometimes, sometimes people get it wrong, memory's constructive and so on, uh, things would have been different. I think the world would be uh, a little bit better place if people understood this stuff more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what are you working on now, Chris? Um, well, we're doing actually doing some follow-up studies to some of the ideas in the book. The, writing the book was actually kind of um, inspirational for, for, for me and I think Dan also in thinking about, um, 
you know, new research we can do. So we're working on some stuff like that. And um, I also I, I do research in several other areas. So one of the interesting ones that I've been working on lately is on um, uh, collective intelligence. So collective intelligence is the idea that um, groups of people can be surprisingly intelligent if they pool their abilities in the right ways. They can not only be smarter than individual members, but um, in, the, in our, the case of our research, we found that some groups are sort of systematically smarter than other groups. And by groups, I mean sort of like teams of three, four, five people working together on projects. And, and not just because the smarter groups have smarter people in them. Actually, two groups can have people, individual members who are just as smart, um, but uh, groups whose members are better at um, uh, perceiving emotional expressions and who do a better job of taking turns and sort of sharing the, the floor in discussion. Um, and interestingly enough, groups with more women um, in them tend to have higher collective intelligence and tend to outperform um, other groups. So we've been working on sort of understanding what collective intelligence is, how we can measure it, and then thinking about sort of what we can do to enable groups to be smarter. Um, so this is sort of a new area, you know, of research that I've been working on um, in the past few years, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Well, that sounds great. Very interesting work. Well, I want to thank you and Dan Simons for writing this really fascinating book. I really recommend that people read it. Um, and also to thank you for being on the New Books Network today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I had a good time. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. We've been talking with Christopher Chabri about his new book, The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which he co-authored with Daniel Simons. I'm Debbie Sorensen, co-host of New Books in Psychology. Thank you for listening.